Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Como Politicast, Minority Rule, How the Fewest of Us Govern the Rest of Us. I'm Jeff Pojla. This country was founded on the idea that we were no longer the subjects of King George and instead a self-governing people, not bound to the whims of a royal family or the noble elite. Laws would be written by the people and passed by a majority of their representatives. But as we look deeper, we find that is not always the case. In fact, it is rarely the case. Whether in the form of a dictatorship, religious oligarchy, or even a minority party, time and time again, a few of us end up governing the most of us. Over the next hour, we'll hear from scholars, pundits, and elected officials on how minority rule has crept back into American politics, particularly in the last year. In 2020, we saw the Supreme Court move even further away from contemporary opinion, the Senate continued to exercise the strength held by the least populated states, and of course, the quadrennial fight over the Electoral College. But let's begin with a history lesson. In the years of our early republic, the nation's founding fathers faced a conundrum, instituting a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, while at the same time protecting it from the dangers of populism and an electorate that is all too often reactionary and uninformed. I'm joined now by Mark Allen Smith, a professor of political science at the University of Washington. I think it's fair to say that the framers of the Constitution were very much worried about the dangers of majority rule. And uh, James Madison especially writes about this in the Federalist Papers. Um, And uh, they were especially worried about the possibility of a um, minority seizing the property of the majority, um, the founders themselves being being property uh, owners. And you had things like Chase Rebellion at that time and various farmer uprisings marching on their state capitals for relief of debt, which sounds great if you're a farmer, but if you're one of those uh, holders of, of the debt um, and then it gets erased by the state legislature, as was happening in some places, that doesn't sound like such a great deal. So they were um, they were very much worried about majority rule, and they put institutions in place to protect from what what later came to be called a, a tyranny of the majority. That's um, Alexis de Tocqueville's uh, term, but it, I think it's certainly that that's kind of the kind of mentality that the that the framers had. Tell me a little bit more about uh, the Connecticut Compromise or the Great Compromise, the bicameral legislature. The Senate was specifically designed to protect against that majoritarian rule. Yeah, the Senate, really the, the whole design was was supposed to protect against that. And James Madison lays out the uh, rationale for this in the, in the Federalist Number 10, where he says that if you have a bunch of different institutions and you kind of spread power around the institutions, it's going to be really hard for a majority to come in and take over all the institutions at the same time. So that's why you want to have bicameralism, you know, maybe a majority takes over the house, but they might not get the Senate. Uh, And of course the Senate at that time was appointed by state state legislatures rather than um, elected by uh, the the relatively small share of of white property owners who are white, white male property owners who are eligible to vote. Uh, and then you're going to have courts, you're going to have an executive. And then also by, by spreading uh, power from, from the state level to the federal level, it would be harder for, for uh, any one majority to like take over all of the individual states, therefore gain all the representatives from those states, and therefore take over the entire federal government. So in a, in a way, the, uh, the framers, they, they were arguing for greater federal power relative to what existed at the time, 
um, in, in the previous uh, U.S. Constitution, the Articles of Confederation, our, our first Constitution. And uh, Madison thought by the various uh, separation of powers and having more power at the federal level rather than the state level, all that would make it harder for a majority to easily get its way. World history for the longest time, it's, it's been minority rule, hasn't it? The perfect example, I think, is in England, the nobles versus the, the common folk. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and, and I would say it, to claim that even we have majority rule now would, would, would really be a stretch. Um, the difficulty is that you, you're going to have some sort of, of government in place, and it's hard to set it up such that you really get uh, majority rule. Uh, some instances historically that look like majority rule, they might be better described as um, some kind of strong man who manages to then mobilize a majority. But to say that that, that majority was pre-existing or was already there before the you know the leader comes comes on the scene um, would, would be a stretch. So we're, we're kind of fighting in a way over differing versions of minority rule because uh, because it is so hard to achieve um, any, any semblance of majority rule. I guess almost from a sociological perspective, you would think that majority rule would be the way humans would sort of form a government. But why is it that so many places around the globe and so many countries throughout history have had dictators, minority rule in whatever form, uh, that sort of thing? I'd say the biggest uh, contributing factor is just economic inequality. Um, So if you go back to uh, our hunter-gatherer ancestry, in those kind of societies where, you know, your, your community is 50 people, 100 people, 150 people, um, they tend to run on a more consensual basis and uh, with, a, with a lot of, um, you know, discussion and, and dialogue. And in, in those kind of societies, there, there's generally not a wide variance in, um, in like lifestyle or, or economic livelihood. Everyone's kind of at the same material level. There, there might be differences in you know, respect in the community and those kinds of things. But because everyone is living at, at roughly the same um, material standard of living, you end up with more consensual. Everybody knows each other. Most of them are related to each other and, and so on. Um, so in those kind of societies, I, I think it, it's fair to say that those do run by majority rule. But once you get into a um, situation of an agricultural society and um, larger scale uh, societies with uh, you know, states coming on the, onto the scene and uh, organizing things, you're going to get a wider distribution of property ownership. The people better off in society um, are, are going to search for means to um, protect um, what they have and, and, and gain more. So you get more st- social stratification. And then naturally, the people who own more, who have, have more power, they're going to want a bigger say in, in governing and they will generally get it. So I, I think the, the biggest effect here is really a shift from hunter-gatherer societies to agricultural societies. Um, And and with that shift is when we get the uh, emergence of minority rule. When we come back, we'll take a closer look at how minority rule has affected some of the nation's contemporary issues when this special edition of the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to this special edition of the Como Politicast as we continue to examine the idea of minority rule. I'm Jeff Pogela. Now, we've looked at how minority rule has been a part of this country's governance since its inception, but how is it manifesting itself today? The most obvious examples are the U.S. Senate and the Supreme Court. Both institutions, one could argue, are acting in a counter-majoritarian way. 
I'm joined once again by Mark Allen Smith, professor of political science at the University of Washington, who says that could lead to people losing faith in the workings of government. I think Chief Justice John Roberts is worried about that very problem, um, and he he seems to be concerned about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court and not wanting to step too far out of line with what's going to be um, acceptable to the, to the public at large. Now, there's a chance, especially with Amy Coney Barrett joining the court, that you know, he, he just might get outvoted on, on some of those things. So we, we could see a, a more um, assertive uh, Supreme Court than we've seen in a, in a very long time. Um, they could do things, um, like you mentioned, in the areas of, of abortion or gay rights and other things that um, would be unpopular in large, in large chunks of the country. You have more and more power shifting towards this minority rule, this, this minority opinion. That doesn't seem sustainable at all. In some ways, it's sustainable as long as that's the system we have in place. And how, how, what does it take to reform that system? Well, constitutional amendments would do it. But if, if you don't have the power to even take control of Congress, um, how do you get to your, you know, two, two-thirds majority um, in, in each chamber plus three-quarters of the states? You can have that that minority rule in it. People might not like some of the outcomes, but they, they don't necessarily have a, a mechanism for, for changing that. I guess on a more fundamental level, doesn't that unrest, that dissatisfaction with the government lead to the potential of revolution? I mean, it did in, in the American Revolution. Yeah, it, it could lead there. I think we need to be careful to assume that because we have a certain you know kind of system right now, that will continue indefinitely. Yasha Monk, a political scientist, among other people, has has, uh, has studied this. And if you uh, if you look at some basic measures like, you know, how many how many people would support you know military rule of the, of the country? It used to be a really tiny sliver, but now it's up to something like you know 15 percent, uh, which, which still doesn't sound like that much, but it's starting from a very low low base. More recent polling evidence showed that I think it was about thirty five percent of both uh, Democrats and Republicans said that it was legitimate to use political violence. I, I think I would say even five years ago, if you were to talk in this much about political violence in this country, I would say, nah, that's that's just not something that's that's, that's really done here. But I wouldn't say that now. I, you know, with like the the current um, you know situation of President Trump claiming massive um, election fraud, some of his supporters could well you know march on state capitals and and uh, you can imagine some 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 clashes there. It, it hasn't happened yet, but I think it's. It's a realistic possibility now in a way that it wasn't just a few years ago. What changed? I think it's just the, the level of, of polarization, um, the level of, of uh, almost hatred in some cases for, quote, the other side, kind of an inability to, to see the other, other side as having you know, legitimate points of their own or, or means by which they arrived at their, their, their positions, um, kind of sensing that they you know, they're not like you, they, they don't belong here. And, you know, how, how do you get along in a, in a diverse country when lots of people think that the people on the other side are reprehensible and you know, beyond the pale? Well, those are the kind of situations where you might say, hey, if that other side's doing some wild and crazy things, well, maybe we might have to use some violence to keep them in check. But when, I, I think as the polarization grows um, and as the, the country gets segmented um, in all kinds of ways, including in their, their media uh, consumption, you know, it's the case right now that I think about three quarters of uh, Republicans think that the election was stolen, that it, it uh, was, you know, a result of, of fraud. That's that's a really high number. 
And, and uh, it's not hard, too hard to imagine in that kind of situation, lots of, uh, of things happening, you know, in the realm of, of political violence. Do you fear for the future of the country? I do, because, it, you know, it's, it's a large and diverse society. You know, it's easier if you're a hunter-gatherer society of 50 people, 100 people, where everybody knows each other and, and most of them are related. But, you know, 330 million people, differing religions, uh, ethnicities, races, you know, values, lots of other lines of lines of division and in a situation where there's kind of a lack of a sense of shared mission i think the the cold war paradoxically helped to stem some potential conflict internally because there was that external enemy there was the soviet union so there was kind of the sense that hey we're all americans and yeah we have our we have our our divides but you know, there, there's something of value in this country. We have a we have a tradition. We have a constitution. We have we have we have a shared shared history, um, and therefore we're kind of all all in it together. Nowadays, you know, 30, 30 years post uh, post Cold War, I, I just don't sense that perception of a, a shared destiny that um, there's something that that connects all Americans uh, to each other, other than like the random fact that you happen to be born, you know, on, on this particular uh, land area. And so without something to unify us, it just becomes tribal warfare. Lacking that external enemy, it, it, people find enemies within the country, uh, and that's not a pretty picture. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk with two people who have had to deal with the challenges and pitfalls of minority rule in their elected positions. When this special edition of the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to a special edition of the Como Politicast, Minority Rule, How the Fewest of Us Govern the Rest of Us. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here in the United States, we believe that our vote has power, that we have a say in who runs our government and how they do so. And while that is true, the American system of democracy is undergoing a bit of a stress test. The occupant of the Oval Office is selected by electors, not the voters. We vote for those who will cast votes in the Electoral College. But much like the Senate, the Electoral College has a small state bias. As a result, five times in American history, the loser of the popular vote claimed the presidency. And as a result, those in the minority were able to seize power. This did not happen in 2020, but it did in 2016. And for four years, President Trump and his supporters exercised minority rule. As we heard earlier from Professor Mark Allen Smith, over the course of human history, minority rule is the norm. And when it comes to modern politics, you can blame the primary election system. Kirby Wilbur is the former chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. I think you got to look at the grassroots versus the overall membership. The grassroots are the people who actually do the work. They're the people that are motivated. They walk the precincts. They make the phone calls. And those people tend to be a bit more committed and ideological than the average Republican on the street. So I think, and I think it's true with the Democrats, where the activists tend to be a little bit more left and less centrist. And so the party's going to reflect the activists, the people that are involved every day in, in the party. And that tends to be people who are a little further out from the center because the centrists typically don't get involved. I mean, they're Republicans or Democrats and they're centrists. They have other things to do. So I think it's a natural situation that occurs in any organization, especially the political party, that the people that are involved in the public face tend to be a little bit further to the right or to the left. We see, as you mentioned on the left, Andrea Ocasio-Cortez and the squad, they're 
trying to push Biden in, in directions that he doesn't want. Uh, and then, you know, we've seen the same thing from the Freedom Caucus and the Republican side. But on a broader sense, too, Republicans, if you look at polls of Americans with Pew Research and stuff like that, they're a minority in the country, but not by much. Like, it's v- almost 50-50. It's closer than most people think. Yeah, think. It, yeah. it's very close, but they, yeah. they are a minority, but there is solid control of the Senate and uh, of the courts, and they, they've been able to hang on to that power through the smaller states. And, well, electoral college. Yeah, and but also keep college. in mind, if you look at ideological polls, not partisan polls, Overwhelming number of Americans, the, the plurality say they're conservative, secondarily say moderate, liberal is a distant third typically. And so when you have a party, the Republican, identify as the conservative, identify with plurality opinion in terms of philosophy, I suspect you get people who vote Republican or support Republican who may not be members of the party, but they identify with the ideology more. I think that's why, Jeff, in election campaigns, you see a lot more talk about conservative or liberal or moderate than you do Republican or Democrat. Because you're trying to identify your opponent with a specific philosophy, especially I think the right uses against the left liberal very effectively because liberal is typically number three on the list of conservative, moderate, liberal. And liberal is usually has more negative connotations with people than conservative. So you see a lot of Republicans attack their opponents, not as Democrats, but as liberals. And so that great murky middle out there identifies with philosophy, and they might be more inclined to vote for a Republican candidate because they're conservative as opposed to being Republican. Does that do damage to both parties, the, the extreme ends of the spectrum? Because particularly in primaries, you, you see everyone's playing how far right can they go? How far left can they yeah. go? And then there's the one; they're the ones that get the attention. I think it can, but there are so many factors that affect the strength of a party. In this state, for instance, I think lack of party registration hurts both parties because you have no idea who your people are. So I think that weakens parties to begin with. And again, it's the activists that tend to dictate the uh, the the primaries. They're the people who tend to vote. And, and the primary, and the general, everyone votes, but your primary voter is much more focused. And so I think if you have a very conservative or very liberal group of activists in your local party, they will dictate the primary. And I do think in the state we occasionally have problems with uh, the, the more extreme people on both sides becoming the primary winners. And then the people in the middle have to decide when general election comes along, gee, how do we end up here? Well, we ended up here because you didn't vote in the primary. When it comes to elections, determining what is a minority is about as simple as it gets, the candidate with fewer votes. But this year, some that are clearly in the minority have done all they can to grab and hang on to power. Another Republican who has had to deal with this is Washington Secretary of State Kim Wyman, who has had her hands full combating rumor, disinformation, and outright lies. How dangerous is it to cast doubt on the validity of the election and, and the validity of the results? Well, it, it's, it, it starts becoming dangerous when people start believing it. And when people believe that our elections are illegitimate, then they believe that the leaders that were elected in those elections are illegitimate. And that starts to undermine democracy at its core. Um, our representative democracy works because people believe that the election was fair and accurate. And you look back at 2016, I think there was a large swath of the country that didn't like the results, but you didn't see rioting in the streets because... 
people um, did believe the election was fair and accurate. So that's really the bar that election administrators operate under. And we really try to inspire that confidence and misinformation and disinformation undermines it. So in your view, what changed in the last four years? You know, I, I think we've seen a couple of campaigns and I always like to be bipartisan in my examples, but I, I think it started you know, I, some of the articles I've read, I know it started back in 2016, and there were certainly um, some some pushes by the Trump campaign to kind of cast out before the election even occurred in the primaries, as well as the general. And then he won, so it kind of died down. Then in 2018, in Georgia, you had a very close governor's race, but the, the victor did win by a pretty sizable margin. And um, the person who lost uh, basically kind of laid out a case that it was an illegitimate election because... Um, um, there's no possible way that she lost. And so I think that we're seeing kind of that playbook moving forward, that if you if you don't win, then call the election into question, um, undermine people's confidence, and maybe they won't believe that the person who was elected is legitimate. Most of that is, let's be honest, coming from the Republican Party. You're a Republican. How does that make you feel? Well, it's, you know, I, I can tell you that there's a, a large group of folks in my party that are not happy with me right now. And uh, I know that because they gave my personal phone number out on Facebook and have called to tell me that. Um, but, uh, you know, in all seriousness, there, I think it's legitimate for people to question the process. It's legitimate for people to use any means through the legal system to to call an election into question. So, you know, the, the frustration for me is that there's been a lot of allegations of irregularities of um, voter fraud. And as of today, I still have yet to have a single piece of any kind of evidence or data to be able to to reply and respond. Coming up, minority rule in Seattle. The city council is so often painted as out of touch because of their ultra progressive policies. But is that truly minority rule? When this special edition of the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to a special edition of the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This hour, we're exploring the idea of minority rule, and one local example of that is the Seattle City Council. Whether it was the failed head tax, the response to the homeless crisis, or even budgetary policy, many believe the nine council members are drastically detached from public opinion. But it's not quite that simple. Joining me now is Como's Matt Markovich, who covers City Hall. I think they're, well, they they tailor and make to the district they represent. I mean, you have probably the most progressive or I'll call it the most volatile district, a district three, which is Shama Sawant, who's a socialist, who's reelected for a second term. And yet people would say that's extreme politics. If you're looking at from outside of Seattle into Seattle, say, how could you have a socialist in district three? Well, would a socialist get basically hired if she ran for the at-large position? Probably not. You talk about minority rule, and that seems to think that just a few people, like 3,000 people, are dictating what a city of 700,000 are trying to decide. Well, the, the very visible vocal electorate out there is a lot of it coming from a, a District 3. So right there you have, that is clearly a minority in the United States of America, socialism. But here they do have a strong voice and that voice has spread throughout all the other district members, including the two at-large members. 
And I think that's where kind of the genesis of what you think of a minority rule in Seattle is happening, because there's such a loud voice. Do you feel that Shama Sawant, the socialist on the city council, has an outsized level of influence on policy? I think she has a terrific ground game. She can mobilize her supporters who are adamant, persistent, uh, persuasive in many ways, vocal, uh, visible, and with that, it can persuade other council members and as well as members of the public to join her cause. She's very good at that. And I think that is probably the acorn in all this is that she's the one who kind of moves forward in a very in a very uh, progressive, I don't want to say, well, obviously in her own tone, a socialist message, mm-hmm. but it's a, a motivating force. It is that minority voice. She does say she speaks for the workers, but in, in terms of politics, it is a minority vo- uh, voice on the council, but it can spread to the other council members. Well, and the other thing, too, if we look back a year, we thought that we were going to see a shift of the mm-hmm. Seattle City Council in the 2019 elections to the right. A lot of this had to do with the failed head tax that was mm-hmm. attempted earlier that year, the city's response and, and the criticisms of its response to the homeless crisis mm-hmm. and, and things of that nature. But we saw it shift further to the left. That was a bit surprising to a lot of people. So are we really seeing minority rule in the city of Seattle? I think that November vote, which which just like you said, people thought this is the opportunity to clean house. You can you had so many people leaving, and you can make it more of a middle ground city council, and it didn't happen. I think what happened there was a backlash about not having corporate America, namely Amazon, come in spend more than a million dollars to buy in a, a city council election in a way. And that's just people just didn't like that. They just didn't want to have a, a corporate overlord like that influence so much of the city election. So they went back hard the other way. And so you have what you said, more a more progressive, more socialist leaning city council. Um, getting back to your point of was is that a minority rule? Well, that played into the minority voices, the backlash against corporate America, Amazon, trying to influence election in such a big way with their money. You're on the street more than I am. You're, you're talking with people in the city of Seattle more than I do. Do you get a sense that they're feeling adequately represented by those on the city council or city hall at large? That's a good question. I think <laughs> it's in Seattle. It depends on who you're talking to. Yeah. You have a lot of, I'll call it an old, older liberal base that is sympathetic to the plight of the homeless. That is a hardcore, big group out there. Then you have the people who want to earn a living in Seattle, trying to keep a big city, make a good living, have a business there, who see things, who see the homeless plight in a different way, that we're not either spending enough money on it on the right way, or we're just tackling the problem in the wrong way. So you have... I hate to say if it's pro-business, but just kind of a business atmosphere, a working atmosphere. And then you have the compassionate liberal left. And you can also maybe put in maybe more of the union vote there. And those are the two factors. When you asked about who I talked to out there, that's kind of what I'm seeing out there. So is Seattle minority rule by the city council? When someone asked me that question, I just have to go back to last November. You had an opportunity to clean house, in a way, with the city council. If you didn't like the super left politics, there was a golden opportunity uh, with seven seats up for election. 
So when you ask if Seattle is minority rule, I would say no. Because just a year ago, they had an opportunity to make a, a, a big change, and the majority did not. Coming up next, given these examples of minority rule, just how sustainable is our democracy? Whether it's questioning the results of an election or an entrenched minority clinging to power, how long can it last? When this special edition of the Como Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to this special edition of the Como Politicast, Minority Rule, How the Fewest of Us Govern the Rest of Us. I'm Jeff Pogela. Despite the fact that a majority of Americans are more progressive on social issues, such as gay rights and abortion, control of the Senate means control of the courts, which, in theory, are not subject to the shifting sands of public opinion. Joining us now is Rick Klein, political director for ABC News. And Rick, there is one man elected by just over 1.2 million people in a small rural state who really controls the direction of social issues in the country. And that's Mitch McConnell. It's astounding. And I've I've watched and covered Mitch McConnell now for 15 plus years. And uh, he is one of the most unlikely characters to be successful in public life. He's not a dynamic public speaker. He's not a big personality. He says almost nothing that he doesn't calculate in advance that he once said. And he has been an enormously effective uh, partisan and an enormously effective tactician in, in a Senate that's changed quite a bit, even in his time. He's seen majorities come and go. Uh, he's been in the minority. He's he's been under divided government. He's been uh, serving with a Republican administration he largely agrees with, and and now one with that he's had some serious breaks with. The sense that he has of, of where his members are, um, the single mindedness of purpose of uh, of looking to keep his majority happy, to keep the interests of his majority happy, um, the, the single mindedness, frankly, of getting judges confirmed under a Republican president. Um, he he famously declared early on in the Obama years that the single most important thing Republicans do could do would to make him uh, a one term president. Uh, He will be the man in so much of the middle now. Uh, Even if the Democrats win these races in Georgia, they will need Republicans uh, on a whole range of issues, including uh, confirming judges and and cabinet appointments. And Mitch McConnell has a previous relationship with Joe Biden. I wouldn't wouldn't pretend to say that it's a particularly warm relationship. They weren't best of friends when they were in the Senate, but they certainly know each other and respect each other. And during the Obama years, it was Joe Biden who was often dispatched to try to cut a deal with Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell is not a person that, that won't cut a deal. He's inclined to do that. He wants to move things along, but he's also not going to act in a way that is uh, that, that is a cross purposes with his maintenance of the majority. And it is uh, an ideologically diverse majority. Keeping all of all of those, you know, whether it's 48 or 50 senators, or, uh, whatever the final number is in, in line and, and working together is a challenge. Is this something that the founders thought of, or is this sort of just how the system naturally evolved to have one person controlling the Senate elected by people from a small state in Kentucky essentially running the country. What's so interesting is that the 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 founders didn't really didn't really uh, consider the idea of a Senate majority leader. Uh, they provide in the constitution for a speaker of the house. Uh, and they provide for a president of the Senate and a president pro tem of the Senate. The president of the Senate is the vice president. Unclear what they thought the vice president would necessarily do, but the vice president, as we know now, breaks ties and, and you know, technically can uh, preside over, over the Senate. No vice president has really been, though, an active president of the Senate. The president pro tem of the Senate is the, the person who, in the majority party, who has served uh, the longest. Uh, there have been majority leaders throughout our history, but it really wasn't until Lyndon Johnson uh, in the 1950s that a, that, a, that a Senate majority leader consolidated power. The real power rested with the committee chairs. 
Um, and again, whether or not that's something the founders anticipated uh, specifically, that's how it worked for the first 150 years or so of, of this country, 175 years, is that uh, the, the committee chairs, uh, if you were the chair of the Judiciary Committee or the Finance Committee or the Foreign Relations Committee, you wielded vast influence over what bills came and went and uh, where things went and where they went to die often. Uh, and, and Lyndon Johnson changed that. And since then, We've had Senate majority leaders who um, have been more or less effective in the role, but uh, have had a, a, a major role in setting the direction uh, of the policy of, of the United States Senate from the purchase uh, as, uh, as as leader of the Senate majority. Um, it's all about the votes, ultimately. Uh, for a long time, the traditions, though, kind of resisted that and and, and, and returned power to people that accumulated it over uh, over seniority and over, over long periods of service. Uh, I, it's hard to see it going Going back uh, would mean a Senate majority leader willingly ceding power to uh, to committee chairs again to see that kind of devolve. Uh, that's 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 a difficult thing. So uh, uh, I, I don't think it's fair to say that uh, the founders would have anticipated um, the, the the singularity of leadership, uh, particularly in the Senate. Uh, which they they viewed as you know the upper branch people that would that would come into this with you know a little bit different service. Of course, as I mentioned, they were named by the state legislature, so these were people that were very well known to uh, to partisans, the people involved in politics. Many of them were very wealthy individuals, uh, landed individuals, people with established names. Uh, this is different, and uh, yes, the idea of one senator one senator from one state uh, wielding this kind of control over the national agenda, it, it's not something that uh, that I, I can say was anticipated. And the last thing I wanted to talk to you about before we let you go, uh, we've seen over this last year a lot of political violence from minorities on both sides. We had the ultra-left here in Seattle during the CHOP protest. Uh, and then you had the ultra-right in Michigan trying to kidnap the governor and put her on trial. We've seen political violence throughout world history. Does it surprise you that we're seeing it again? Well, in some ways, I'm surprised it hasn't been worse. And, and I don't want to tempt fates with this, but there's been times over the last several years, and particularly this past year, where I really was scared for what would happen next, and um, for all of the threats, uh, and and for all of the uh, the plots that, that apparently were disrupted, and for all of the the the, the violent demonstrations, uh, we haven't seen mass episodes of, of political violence. Again, I knock on wood, and I'm, I'm certainly not inviting it in any in any stretch. But you don't have to go back that far in our history to find that kind of tumult. I mean, the assassinations of the 1960s and 1968 alone, with the assassination of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy uh, and the, 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 the killing of, uh, of protesters against the Vietnam War, um, the, the disruptions at the convention that year, the kind of lockdown in Chicago, uh, that's only 50 years ago. And uh, it's certainly within the lifetimes of a lot of, uh, a lot of Americans. And uh, I, to my mind, it hasn't gotten to that level uh, and, and certainly not as bad as the Civil War. Um, you know, you can go back in history and there's been episodes of members of Congress assaulting each other even on the house floor we haven't seen that and i'm thankful for that uh, uh, that said uh it's gotten worse than i as something of a student of history ever hoped or thought it, that it could um i was you know hopeful and and continue to be hopeful that that those, those kind of episodes were behind us that we're more civilized than that now and we won't there's no more duels <laughs> as alexander hamilton and aaron burr you know demonstrated for the for the world uh and you know the the, the fact that we've even had those discussions that uh that that that, that public servants uh are being threatened um 
because of the things that they're doing in their official work, not just uh, the governor of Michigan, but election officials in Georgia and Arizona, who uh, some of whom have needed additional police protection. Um, some of them are Republicans that are doing uh, doing their jobs and are being threatened by people that are supporters of President Trump. Uh, it's unfortunate. It's ugly. Uh, I think you know the country has been tense. It's been sick. This is this has been. You know, I think it, you know, overall the the worst year that almost all Americans have lived through in 2020, uh, and uh, I think politics is is a piece of that, and, and maybe unfortunately a major piece of that. Uh, so I, I'm surprised in one level, but also gratified that uh, it hasn't gotten as bad as it could. And and I hope for 2021 and beyond, as coronavirus we turn a, we turn a corner there. Uh, as uh, as Joe Biden um, takes takes office, uh, as his agenda and his administration come in, that we can at least continue that and hope that uh, that people can do the nation's business without uh, fear of, of violence enacted against them. So whether it's Republicans controlling the Senate and therefore the courts and the Electoral College or far left Democrats pulling the political strings of Seattle and King County, minority rule is something that has been entrenched in American politics since its inception. Much of that is by design, so that even those with opinions and views out of the mainstream have some form of representation in our government. But many of the consequences of minority rule could not have been foreseen by the founders. In this time of extreme political divisiveness, minorities on both sides have turned to demonizing each other, while the common middle shrinks to nothing more than a minority itself. And that can lead to revolution, which is rarely bloodless. I'm Jeff Podula, and thank you for listening to this special episode of the Como Politicast, Minority Rule, How the Fewest of Us Govern the Rest of Us. My thanks to our guests, Mark Allen Smith, Kim Wyman, Kirby Wilbur, Matt Markovich, and Rick Klein. Written and produced by Jeff Podula with help from Kevin Dodrell, Jeremy Grader, and others. Thank you for listening, and for more, stay with Como 1000 AM and 97.7 FM, on air, online, and on your smart speaker. This program is available in its entirety at comonews.com or just subscribe to the Como Politicast on your favorite podcast app.